It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, November 11th, 2021, and this is The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you very much for listening. We do appreciate it every day. A growing radio family. Thanks to all of you. Let's keep it rolling. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast free every day on demand there and elsewhere. GuyBensonShow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. It's easy. Or my personal accounts, Twitter, Instagram, at Guy P. Benson. Here's our lineup today. Byron York later this hour, Fox News contributor, Washington Examiner journalist. He will be here on immigration and other issues. Julio Rosas, my colleague at townhall.com, where I'm political editor. He is in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He's been covering the Rittenhouse trial that we mentioned yesterday in our opening monologue. He not only has been covering the trial very closely, some of the videos that he shot during the riots in Kenosha last summer have made it into the trial itself. It's evidence. So we'll get Julio's comments on that and what he has been seeing watching basically every minute of this trial. Also, Joey Jones in our final hour will join us. Joey, a colleague here at Fox News, a Marine veteran, a wounded warrior. And today is Veterans Day. What does that mean to Joey and his brothers and sisters in arms. We will ask him about that. We will also be seeing him next week for the Patriot Awards down in South Florida, Fox Nation. Next Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be broadcasting this show from the venue for two days next week. We are excited about that. We will mention it with Joey when he joins us coming up in our final hour. Let's bring you stats and a Fox News alert here on covid The case count is 46.7 million official positive cases based on the testing in this country. The real number, as we always say, is far higher than that. The death toll of or with COVID here in the U.S., 758,588. The Dow is down 130 points right now, currently at 35,949, so just shy of 36,000. With 51 minutes to go in the trading day. We'll update you in the next hour on that final number. I want to bring to you this as we get going a few interesting notes and maybe breadcrumbs on the path of what Senator Joe Manchin might have cooking. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat, West Virginia. One of the few people left in Congress who I think could be described truly as a moderate Democrat. He's also the only guy with a D next to his name, in all likelihood, who could win in West Virginia. So the activists are going crazy about Kirsten Sinema, who ran as a moderate, and they're horrified that she's governing as one out in Arizona. But they're talking about primarying her. They're not really seriously talking about primarying Joe Manchin because they have no other options in that state. 
he and Cinema both very interesting figures in this whole debate over spending. So last Friday, as we mentioned, the infrastructure bill passed the House. It had already passed the Senate. It will be signed Monday by President Biden. It will become law. Did I like the bill? No. Did I think it was horrible? No. I see arguments in favor of supporting it from the Republican perspective. Also arguments against, which I made here on the show, especially because in the House in particular, the victory margin for Pelosi was virtually zero. She needed all of those 13 Republican votes to get the thing passed. And with so much on the line, that was very frustrating to me. I will say there have been reports of some of the Republicans who voted in favor of the infrastructure bill getting all sorts of threats, death threats, death wishes. I mean, come on. We don't need any of that. We can disagree passionately and not threaten people. Like, I mean, come on, let's pull ourselves together. And unfortunately, this happens all the time in a polarized country. Some people on both sides get really angry. And, you know, remember Susan Collins with the Brett Kavanaugh thing? She was getting death threats. Someone was at her house. That's a big thing that they do on the left, going to people's houses, which is especially gross and intimidating, in my opinion. But uh, we don't need threats. Also, of the two, the infrastructure bill is bipartisan. It was negotiated by multiple members of both parties. And no matter how strongly you feel or not that strongly on that bill, it's the reconciliation, Democrat-only, partisan, build-back-better scheme that is much more concerning and unacceptable to me. And there are zero Republicans in Congress who are going to support it. None. The question is, will Democrats have enough votes themselves to get it done? One of the benefits, and again, hear me out on this, one of the potential benefits of the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan bill passing on Friday night, is that what the progressives were trying to do and did do successfully was link inextricably these two these uh, two pieces of legislation. right? So you had the $1 trillion infrastructure bill, about half of which was new spending, much of which, but not all of which is paid for. A lot of that money was just repurposed money that had already been allocated elsewhere. So it, you know, the, the big number looks bigger than it actually is. But the progressives wanted that bill coupled with the massive social spending, human infrastructure, whatever you want to call it here, reconciliation bill, build back better. They wanted them voted on together. In fact, they wanted the Build Back Better to come first in the sequencing because they don't trust the moderates in the House, but especially in the Senate. And so for weeks, to use this term that's so popular, they held the bipartisan bill hostage, saying we will tank this bill. We will ensure that it loses in the House. The progressives were saying this, threatening, which is why Pelosi went along with this for a while. She was on their side for the longest time until she started to realize, "Uh uh-oh, we might get nothing done. We have to do infrastructure first. They had some deal that they worked out. I think it's pretty weak where the moderates and the progressives said, okay, we're going to trust each other. We're going to trust the president and we're going to pass the infrastructure bill first and then we'll get around to build back better. And we promise, pinky swear, we're going to get that done. Now, that was a pinky swear in the House only, not involving the Senate. And so the hostage, if you will, in this situation, the hostage has been released by the progressives. They can no longer say, they can no longer threaten 
if you don't give us what we want on the partisan spending bill, then we're going to make sure that this other bill, the infrastructure thing that you all want so badly, your your bipartisan moderate bill, uh, we, we can no longer credibly threaten to kill it because it's now going to become law. It has been passed by both chambers. So that leverage for the squad and the progressives, because the squad still voted no on infrastructure because they're still worried about getting double crossed. The other progressives bent to Pelosi and did it. But there are already rumblings that they're upset and they're worried. They're very worried about what's going to happen, maybe not in the House, although that's up in the air, but certainly in the Senate. And maybe they should be worried because their leverage is gone. It might become a take it or leave it situation for whatever they're allowed or able to get on Build Back Better, or it might end up being nothing. And there's nothing they can do about it because ultimately they were bluffing and they gave in. So by, quote unquote, freeing the hostage and decoupling the bills, I think there is a better chance that the Democrat only partisan bill either gets watered down even further or dies altogether. Yesterday, we had the numbers come out, actually Tuesday and Wednesday on inflation, really bad. Right. The inflation number, consumer price index yesterday, the highest rate of inflation in 30 years. It's been three decades since it was this bad. And within minutes of that number coming out, Joe Manchin went on Twitter and put out a statement again expressing deep concerns and reservations about inflation. He's been talking about inflation and the debt for months. The Democrats seem to not be listening to him. I mean, they're obviously not because they're saying, hey, let's spend trillions of more dollars. He's like, y'all, what about this national debt? What about this inflation? Now the inflation's worse. So he came out, he put out that tweet again. Then came this story today from Axios. Quote, red hot inflation data validates the instinct of Senator Joe Manchin to punt President Biden's Build Back Better agenda until next year, potentially killing a quick deal on the $1.75 trillion package People familiar with the matter tell Axios. Manchin is content to focus on the issues that need to be addressed, Axios is told. Those include funding the government, raising the debt ceiling, and passing the National Defense Authorization Act. Progressives have long worried that after their centrists got their $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, they'd find excuses not to move on the budget reconciliation package. And I think that those worries are going to intensify if Manchin keeps making these noises. And I would not be surprised at all if Manchin or his people reached out to Axios saying, hey, we want to start setting the table, so to speak, to punting this thing. How in your in the several months of meetings? If that happens, if it gets punted into next year, what's going to end up happening is the left is going to flip out and they're going to act shocked and betrayed. But there's really no shock that's justified because Manchin has been saying month after month that he doesn't want to do this. He's not happy with the numbers. He is concerned about the price tag, the pay fors all of it. And how many times has he said or even written in op-eds, maybe we need to pause all of this. Remember the strategic pause? It's like, hey, let's wait six months. The bad economic news, the bad inflation news has only apparently, reportedly, driven him further into that camp. 
And so a pause into next year then plops this thing into the middle of an election year where the Democrats are already correctly very nervous about what might happen next fall. And you put a potentially toxic bill or at least a controversial one, especially in swing districts, onto the floor in the middle of an election year. There's a reason why they wanted to get it done in 2021 and not 2022. The farther it creeps, the farther this thing bleeds, the likelier it is that it dies. I'm not saying I'm not predicting that it's going to go down in flames or fail. I'm just saying the farther it goes out into the future toward the next election, the likelier it becomes that it would die. And this is, I think, Manchin telegraphing that he is perfectly comfortable, if not eager, to push this thing off and shove it into next year. And if and when he makes that official, maybe it'll be like a slow roll or maybe he will just come out and say, I am not voting for anything until we have a strategic pause for X amount of time. And let's focus on, you know, the the government spending bill. So there's not a shutdown. Let's focus on the debt ceiling or whatever. You're going to see an absolute meltdown on the left. And that is going to be very interesting to watch. Maybe they can find new ways to alienate Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, Not just, you know, uh, accosting him at his houseboat or chanting at him in the streets that they're going to die if the bill doesn't pass or chasing cinema into bathrooms with cameras. I saw they also went to a wedding that she attended. They were disrupting and chanting at a wedding where she was a guest. The mother of the bride was in tears, begging them to stop. But these people are actually out of their minds and like sick. There's something wrong with them. And this is the activism that they think is successful. Winning hearts and minds. Well, winning hearts and minds, let's talk about that. Last week, we mentioned there was an ABC News poll that asked people, will the Build Back Better, Biden agenda, Democrat spending bill, will this help you and your family? Only about a quarter of the American people said yes. More people said no, it'll actually hurt. Then we highlighted the USA Today Suffolk poll with all the terrible numbers for Biden and Harris and the Democrats. Uh, Similar. About a quarter of the American people said, yeah, we think this is going to help us. Now, here's a new poll from YouGov. The Democrat-only spending bill, Build Back Better, is now underwater by almost 20 points. Its favorable rating, its support level is 28%, with a plurality 45% opposed. 28% are in favor of this thing. Republicans are overwhelmingly against it, obviously. Independents have flipped. They were for it. Now they're more against it. Democrats are mad that it's getting smaller and not bigger. They want it big. I know the analysis as well. These independents are alienated. This needs to be a bigger bill. Uh, Yeah, good luck. Let's see if that actually plays out. That's not the direction this is heading. It's not the way that Manchin and Cinema are bringing it. I think the bipartisan bill on infrastructure passed. People are very worried about inflation. They see the government trying to figure out some new way to justify trillions of dollars in new spending, and they're not so keen on that anymore. So you got a 28% approval rating or support level for this bill that they keep saying is going to be the the solution to everything. It'll solve inflation. It'll create all these jobs. It'll make us more competitive. I don't think it'll do any of those things. In fact, it could make inflation worse, which is typically what happens when the government spends far too much money. And they keep pretending this is so popular. The American people cry out for Build Back Better. 
28% of them are crying out for Build Back Better as of this moment, which would be trillions on top of the other trillions that we've just spent in the last two years. It's an unsustainable clip of emergency spending in a pandemic, and they want to add trillions more. It's crazy. The American people don't want it. And the Democrats, especially the progressives, might be in for a very rude awakening if Joe Manchin digs in his heels, and he might. And we are watching it closely here on The Guy Benson Show, just getting started on this Thursday. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Everything from a gallon of gas to a loaf of bread costs more, and it's worrisome, even though wages are going up. We still face challenges, and we have to tackle them. We have to tackle them head on. As President Biden yesterday, wages are going up, except not real wages. When your wages go up a little bit and the cost of everything goes up a lot, you have less purchasing power. Your real wages are down. That's what's happening right now in this economy. Biden also made this observation, cut seven. Do you ever think you've been paying this much for a gallon of gas? In some parts of California, they're paying $4.50 a gallon. Yeah, wow. He's like, whoa, look at this. Look at these prices. Uh, Yeah. Yes, Mr. President, yes. You have a plan? Does your energy secretary maybe have a plan on those gas prices or oil production or something here at home? Let's remind everyone of what she said in an interview just a few days ago, cut 24. What is the Granholm plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. It's going great, guys. We're in the very best of hands. I'm not saying that they can snap their fingers and fix all of the problems. But when you have the energy secretary busting a gut, laughing at the idea of increasing oil production here at home, which the administration has fought for environmental reasons, right? So now we're begging OPEC to increase their production, but shutting down our pipelines here. That seems bad. When you have a supply chain crisis and the transportation secretary is in Glasgow, Scotland on climate change and talking about how the supply chain issues are fueled by unaffordable childcare, which is why we need Build Back Better, It seems like they don't really know what they're talking about and have exactly the wrong instincts and policy prescriptions to fix at least partially or mitigate what is plaguing the country. Byron York up next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. 
We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. It's Thursday. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast. If you can't listen live, we now have with us Byron York, chief political correspondent at The Washington Examiner. He's a Fox News contributor. At The Examiner, he writes The Daily Memo. He's also author of the book Obsession. Byron, good to have you back. Hi, Guy. Good to be here. I want to ask you about a controversy that I've seen play out a bit. I have not followed it terribly closely. I did see that Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida had sort of a pointed comment about it. It's these uh, these flights, these late-night flights carrying illegal immigrants from the border in Texas to other states. I know New York had gotten some of these immigrants uh, flown in in the dead of night, and I, I think when – the press secretary was asked about it a few weeks ago. She was disputing, was it really the dead of night or was it very early in the morning? Like that's sort of how she was deflecting. Uh, some have gone to Florida as well. And DeSantis in Jacksonville had some statement about it. Here's what he said in Cut 21. So here's what happens with these flights. There's no notification to the state of Florida. These are done mostly in the middle of the night and it's clandestine. And we really have no say into it. Uh, we're going to get together and figure out what we can do in the immediate term uh, to protect folks in Florida. You know, my view would be, why don't we, if, if they're going to come here, you know, we'll provide buses and provide them. Uh, we, I will send them to Delaware. All right. So you're going to send them up to the president's home state. What is going on uh, with these flights and What's the jurisdiction here? Just the feds putting illegal immigrants onto airplanes and flying them into other states with no advanced knowledge or even a heads up for the governments of those states? Well, that is indeed happening. Actually, one of the good things about this Florida uh, example here is that we have really official confirmation of it. Uh, in other states, we've had press reports. Uh, we've had talk about it, uh, but with, with Florida, with the governor coming out confirming it all, I think it's very useful. Uh, the answer is, yeah, I mean, th- this is what the Biden administration is doing uh, to, uh, it, it, you and I have discussed, as a matter of fact, the, the Biden administration policy is the most, I think, um, destructive thing about it is that Biden sent a message to people who were considering crossing illegal and illegally into the United States is that if you do it, you can stay. Mm-hmm. It's been an enormous incentive uh, for people uh, to come here. Uh, and also, there are real limits as to what state governors can do. I was thinking about this just today. Uh, back in 2010, if you remember, um, a woman named Jan Brewer was governor of Arizona. Yep. Uh, the state passed a law uh, allowing them to uh, check on the legal status of people who were otherwise uh, stopped for uh, suspicion of illegal activity. This became a huge national uh, brouhaha. And the bottom line was, is um, Brewer, the governor, was saying, look, if the federal government is not going to enforce the immigration laws, then we'll do it. Well, the, the Obama administration took her to court, and the Obama administration's argument was pretty simple. It was the federal government has the sole authority to uh, enforce the immigration laws, and we're not going to do it. 
you can't either. So uh, Obama's position was always is that he had sole authority uh, to enforce the law or to not enforce the law as he chose. And so that position actually won. Um, So... I think you know we'll we'll see what Governor DeSantis can do. We've had issues like this with Governor Abbott in Texas as well. Um, the federal government has an enormous amount of power dealing with the issue of immigration. I just think it's pretty shocking, though, because you have this uh, huge open border problem. What a million and a half people that we know of, actually not counting the gotaways and the unknown gotaways, but a million and a half in a year coming into the country illegally. And all the incentives are wrong, as you point out. And what the federal government that uh, what they're doing here, aside from basically putting on the bright green light for people to show up, they are then taking some of these illegal immigrants that make into the United States, putting them on airplanes and not flying them back to their country of origin or flying them back to where they had, you know, come from or you know where where their papers are valid or what have you they are flying them deeper into the united states to other places to other states including some states where the leadership is saying they're not even telling us that it's happening with desantis arguing there that a lot of it's happening in the middle of the night these planes are landing in florida and disgorging groups of illegal immigrants into the state and part of the reason this is such a controversy in florida is that there's been a murder, right? There's a a Honduran national, an illegal immigrant, 24 years old, now charged with the murder of a man in Florida. And it turns out that this 24-year-old illegal immigrant claimed at the border to be an unaccompanied minor, right? So he claimed that he was 17. In fact, he was an adult. Now he's murdered someone. And what bothers me, Byron, about these debates is when an illegal immigrant who has no right to be here commits a violent crime or murders an American and that then comes to light and people take issue with it and are offended by it, you get this backlash on the left saying, oh, you're trying to tar an entire community, right? You're trying to portray immigrants or even illegal immigrants as violent and dangerous and that's xenophobic and that's racist. And I think that that's just so grotesquely unfair. We can say it is extremely rare for immigrants or illegal immigrants to commit crimes like murder. Legal immigrants we know commit crimes at lower rates than natural-born U.S. citizens. It's unclear on illegal immigrants. But you cannot paint with a broad brush about any group of people and also say it is absolutely disgusting and unacceptable that someone who came here illegally took advantage of our system, lied about being a minor, was in fact a 23-year-old adult at the time, came in, now is in Florida, and killed a guy, that should be completely unacceptable, and yet it's treated so often like we're not even allowed to talk about it because it's it's distasteful to do so. Yeah, well, first of all, the, the, uh, the middle-of-the-night flights themselves is kind of an indication that the, the uh, federal government is trying to sneak one past um, a lot of uh, local communities. Uh, beyond that is the issue of vetting, um, which is, you know, you know there's, there's a difference in the law between refugees and uh, asylum seekers. And mm-hmm. refugees are people who, in their country, um, uh, apply for refugee status so that they could come to the United States. 
The United States then vets them. While they're in their home country, it takes quite a while to do all this, and then decides whether or not they can be be brought here. So uh, the decision-making is all on the, the United States, and the United States decides whether that person should be permitted in the country or not. Asylum-seeking is much different. Uh, you cross, the, in, in the case of the U.S.-Mexico border, cross the border illegally, show up. You are then, as they say in the law, physically present in the United States. And you have the right to make a claim of asylum. Now, the thing that the Trump uh, administration did, partly out of frustration, but it was very effective, was something called the Remain in Mexico policy. That is, you, you illegally cross into the United States. We essentially take your information, and uh, while the case is adjudicated, you have to remain outside the United States. You can't just start living your life in the United States as if you had been granted asylum, because, as you know, the vast majority of asylum um, applicant applications are turned down. Mm-hmm. So uh, the problem is... Because a lot that, of them are simply bogus, right? Some of them are not sufficiently proven. Many of them are just pure you know, nonsense, right? Full-blown bogus claims because it's their hope, their ticket in their mind to come into the country and, you know, claim that they need this status, get released into the interior and then never show up. And that's made, I would imagine, even easier if you claim to be a child, which in this case, uh, the alleged murderer did. I mean, there are people 100% taking advantage of our system. And it. what's frustrating to me is as a somewhat moderate person on the issue of immigration, at least theoretically, it seems like our federal government is very much on the side of people taking advantage of our system. They are encouraging them to do exactly that. They are indeed. Uh, to be granted asylum, you have to show that you have a legitimate fear of persecution in your country because of your race or your sex or your political um, views or, or whatever. But you have to actually face a legitimate danger in your country. And coming here for uh, a better life or because your uncle um, got a job in Albuquerque is, is not uh, grounds for asylum. And basically what the United States has done, and we've discussed this, is that large numbers of people cross the border, and the Biden administration is essentially just taking down their names, giving them a piece of paper, uh, telling them that they need to show up in court on this day in 2024 for a court date to consider their application, then they just go and then put them on the plane somewhere. When I, uh, several months ago, I went down with a Republican congressional delegation to look at the border in uh, McAllen, Texas. And coming back, the McAllen Airport, there were lots and lots of families of people who had clearly crossed illegally into the United States relatively recently, uh, who had who were given a packet and uh, a, a set of English um, phrases to use in the airport. You know, I do not speak English. I am on American Airlines flight XXX. Uh, can you please help me? That kind of thing. So the federal government, is, the Biden administration in particular, is just doing this on a mass scale, and that gets us back where we started with the situation in Florida. Byron, on another topic, I opened the show today uh, reading the Axios story about Joe Manchin 
who is at least starting to indicate that he wants to deal with the debt ceiling and the government funding bill and the uh, you know the NDAA in the coming weeks and uh, months before the end of the year and would be perfectly happy to push off Build Back Better in this big spending plan into next year. He's talking a lot about inflation, understandably. He's talking a lot about the national debt as well, understandably. Now that the bipartisan infrastructure bill hostage has been released by the progressives and a lot of that leverage that they had because of the uh, infrastructure bill uh, being held up at the time is now gone. I wonder what you think is going to happen here and what will the reaction be? I mean, it, it could be volcanic on the left if Manchin holds this thing up and then shoves it into next year, which is, a, you know, kind of tenuous stuff in an election year. Do you think he's bluffing or do you think his intention here is to kind of uh, either move it into next year or let this thing wither? Well, I think you would definitely like to do one of those two things. Um, I, yeah, I thought, I don't know what you, you thought about it, but I mean, I thought the progressives made an extraordinary surrender in this whole situation about the bipartisan infrastructure bill. In the sense they did. They allowed this vote to go forward on the promise that we'll do it by Thanksgiving. We'll, we'll take it up by Thanksgiving. And to show you, show you um, how serious we are, said the House Democratic leadership, we're going to pass a rule to deal with debate for this bill. So it tells you we're really going to do this. And so th- they gave up the hostage on yep. a simple And they, they obviously can't control the Senate, right? This is like a, a, a tenuous promise from House moderates with strings attached that's kind of, you know, in flux, I would say. Then there's the Senate piece, which they have no control over whatsoever. These are the people that they're, they're you know, line in the sand, bright red line for weeks and months was we want the reconciliation bill to pass the Senate before we allow a vote on infrastructure. And now it's we've passed infrastructure and we have something of a partial guarantee, maybe, of a vote in the House on reconciliation. I don't know how you describe that in any way other than a complete surrender for the progressives. Um, totally agree with you. Now, on the mansion thing, I think everybody has been, or if they haven't, they should be rattled by this inflation news. I mean, it's really caught people's attention, uh, obviously, the news that up 6.2% over the previous October. Right, 30-year um, high. Clearly seems to be, you know, if you look at the most recent of the inflation statistics, energy is a larger component of the increase than other um, uh, other factors, and it looks like that's going to increase significantly more as winter comes on and people heat their homes. So, I mean, this is something to really worry about. It has more than eaten up the wage gains that people have had over this whole last year. And uh, it's causing a lot of hardship and a lot of concern. Now, um, you know, what was it, February 4th, two weeks into the um, Biden administration, Larry Summers, the the Democrat, the Harvard economist, the former Secretary of the Treasury, publishes this article in the Washington Post and said, you know, this uh, stimulus is all good that we're passing. And by that time, they had uh, passed a $900 billion uh, COVID relief bill stimulus in December and were contemplating passing a $1.9 
uh, trillion dollar bill, which they did in um, Yeah, and he starts warning. He's like, hey, guys, at some point there's going to be inflationary pressures here. This could get bad. And he was laughed off, totally shrugged off by the Biden people. And now it's kind of looking like maybe he was right all along, except they're saying, well, the real solution has to be more spending. I mean, that's like more cowbell always for the Democratic Party. More taxes, more spending forever and ever. That is their core belief. And it doesn't matter how insane or destructive it feels at any given time, especially one like this. Uh, They're going to pursue it. Byron York at the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Byron, we appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Guy. Stay tuned. Woke Tales next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Let's hit some Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Got to squeeze this one in. It's from the University of Maryland, just up the road from here. Their slogan on this uh, PowerPoint presentation from the university is fearless ideas, fearless ideas at the University of Maryland, the Terrapins. They had this graph PowerPoint presentation talking about their new admissions and enrollment statistics. The number of applications, the number of admissions, how many people matriculated, the average SAT score, all of that stuff. And then they have a category, and they've been tracking it for years. Two categories on race, of course, of course. One category is students of color, comma, minus Asian. And then a separate category, whites and Asians. Students of color minus Asian. Love like intersectionality has an asterisk. We're all the people of color. They're in it together, except when they're not. When there are woke purposes at hand. Students of color minus Asian. That's a new one from our race bean counters. Our woke moral betters. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you listening. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. All of your program needs right there in one easy place on social media at guy benson show twitter and instagram check it out follow us and a fox news alert as we begin this middle hour the dow closes down today 158 points ending at 35,921. joining us now is julio rosa senior writer at townhall.com where he's my colleague He's also a U.S. Marine. So, Julio, welcome back to the show. And on this Veterans Day, thank you for your service. (laughs) Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Guy. I appreciate it. So I want to start not with your coverage of the Rittenhouse trial, which you've been following extremely closely in Wisconsin. Let's turn back the clock to last summer and what you witnessed in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the rioting, the unrest, the crime, and what happened that night with two people being killed, one other person being shot, at least in this incident, what you witnessed, what you filmed, because that is all extremely relevant to what's been playing out in the courtroom over these last few days. 
I mean, yeah. Uh, w- one thing that I actually wrote for Town Hall before the start of the trial was that it, it was a riot. It, w- it wasn't a protest. And yet even still, even literally to this day, we have a lot of the mainstream media still calling that, oh, Rittenhouse uh, brought, some, brought a gun to a protest. And I can tell you that's just not true because it, it was just a riot. Um, and so uh, as it, when it comes to the actual shooting, so I didn't see the first half where uh, Rittenhouse shot Joseph Rosenbaum because Joseph Rosenbaum was chasing him and launched for the weapon. Um, I was up the street. I heard uh, the gunshots. And so me being me, I started to run towards where the gunshots were coming from. Uh, and uh, that's when I saw Rittenhouse um, running up the street. And obviously, I didn't know at the time, but I, I thought it was weird because a lot of other people were also running down the street, and he was the only person running up. And so then as he started to pass where I was, I could hear people shout, get him, get him, he shot somebody. Uh, so I started filming, and then that's when... Uh, he started to get punched from behind. He tripped and fell down, uh, and someone tried to jump kick him. He fires two shots. Uh, Anthony Huber with a skateboard hits him and tries to. And because of his momentum, he was he was running. He was going past him, but he was also reaching back to grab the rifle. And Rittenhouse actually testified that he could feel the rifle being pulled away from him, and so that's why he fired one one round and and which killed uh, Huber. And then uh, the last uh, who had round beaten fired, him, who but, had beaten him pretty severely with a skateboard, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He hit him, and yep. I believe it was like either the neck or yeah, you know, somewhere near the, the upper, uh, like the neck and the head area. And and then Gage Grosskreutz comes up. Uh, first, he has his hands up as he testified, and uh, Rittenhouse did not shoot him. And but then Grosskreutz uh, put his hands down, and he had a handgun in his hand, and he started to aim it at Rittenhouse's head, and Rittenhouse, seeing this, he then sh- shoots one last round, and which destroyed uh, Gates uh, Grosskreutz's uh, bicep. And then one thing that actually kind of gets lost in the mix in, in this is that actually at that same time, um, because I was trying to back away from the situation, because obviously I didn't know like, what was exactly going to happen as all these gunshots were going off, uh, but I had to stop in my tracks because people were driving by and shooting. Uh, at the same time, and so I was actually kind of stuck on this side road because I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, they're shooting going on in front of me, they're shooting going on behind me, and there was no hard cover uh, anywhere nearby for me to kind of crouch behind. So I was just kind of just standing there in the middle of the road, thinking like, "Oh, this is not good." Um, and then, thankfully, obviously, none, none of the bullets hit me, uh, and it was a, um, it was a very, to this day, it was one of the most intense situations I've ever, I've ever been. No, I mean, it sounds terrifying, totally chaotic. Um, I think there's an argument that has been made that I happen to agree with that Rittinghouse should not have been there in the first place. This is a teenager with a gun coming across state lines to try to get a handle on a situation that was, you know, a riot that played out for a couple days. Uh, and I think that, that that's my opinion of him. I don't think that he's a hero. He shouldn't be some, you know, cult figure here. But also whether he should have been there or not is totally irrelevant to the actual crimes, alleged crimes, that he's charged with. And what you witnessed, Julio, and what you filmed at the time was this this harrowing incident. And it is now evidence in the trial that's been playing out in Kenosha. And the trial has been, I mean, explosive. I think it is fair to say that. There have been a few moments we've played some of the sound bites here on the air uh, that, that one final person who was shot by Rittenhouse his testimony that confirmed self-defense on Rittenhouse's part, that he was pointing his gun at Rittenhouse, which is what caused Rittenhouse to, to fire, that was a huge moment. We've had the judge now repeatedly scolding and 
in some cases, raising his voice at the prosecutor for a number of different tactics and you might call them dirty tricks that the prosecutor has attempted. Uh, What have been some of the biggest moments and takeaways for you as you've watched this trial, which also has to have a certain air of the surreal for you having witnessed everything and filmed stuff which is now relevant to the fate of the defendant? Well, I mean, it's 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 been weird for sure. Um, when I was first in the courtroom on Friday, um, actually, that was the first time I had seen Rittenhouse since since that night in person, and um, it was it was it was odd because it was it was as you said it was surreal because I'm, I'm like, oh, you're you're the guy that we're all here for. Um, and he actually looked directly at me, and, and you know, I just kind of gave him like a head nod, just like, hey, how you doing? Um, but I mean, one of the, one of the big takeaways actually is kind of important because the question was, how did he end up alone by himself? Because originally he was part of a group, uh, but in kind of the chaos of the moment, he, he got separated from the person who was supposed to be his, uh, you know, battle buddy. And, and we found out that actually the reason why Rittenhouse started to go down to the car lot, uh, down the road where the shooting ended up taking place, the first one. Uh, was, was because uh, he had gotten a call from his friend, Dominic Black, who, who bought the AR-15 for him, and which uh, they kept the gun in Wisconsin. So that, that's kind of one of the misconceptions that people have. Um, Rittenhouse didn't, uh, he didn't even cross state lines that night. He was staying at his friend's house, and the rifle that he used uh, stayed in Wisconsin the whole time. Um, and so he, his friend, Dominic Black, called him and said, hey, there's a fire going uh down down the road at this car lot that and so we need you to put it out and so rittenhouse asked for a fire extinguisher and someone gave it to him and he actually asked, and he was like he training to become a firefighter right rittenhouse wanted to be a firefighter uh actually i believe he wanted to be a police officer he was part of he was part of uh some programs uh to like like a firefighter cadet program of some type yes uh, but i think he or, or no no he, he no sorry he wanted to be a medic uh, ultimately but he was part of like these cadet programs for law enforcement and firefighters um, Got it, and so the, and so that's why he was kind of you know uh, acting as such because I mean as I could tell you no one <laughs> the the actual authorities were so overwhelmed and in some cases weren't even doing much uh, because of and of, by the uh, way just to jump in Julio on that exact point because people have said over and over again that he shouldn't have been there this was extremely poor judgment he had no business being there he shouldn't have done it. Whether you agree or disagree with that, and as I said, I happen to agree with it, the other part of it that far fewer people are saying, and it needs to be said over and over again, is it the circumstances that drew him to exercise, in my view, his bad judgment were completely unacceptable and a massive failure of not just the local authorities, but especially the state authorities who were absolutely derelict in stopping full-blown rioting. And there will be some people who get scared or angry or decide – if the people in charge aren't going to be in charge, someone has to put an end to this. You know, car lots being you – know, 100 cars being torched, all this stuff. The circumstances on the state side of this that led to this incident are absolutely disgraceful. So I just wanted to add that color to this as well. All right, so so pick up that thought. He gets called by his friend. He's going to try to put out a fire, and that's part of the reason that he was separated from you know some of these other people who had shown up to – to try to keep the peace or keep some law and order, right? Yes, yes. And so that, that's why Rittenhouse was going down the street. And actually at that same time, Joseph Roosevelt was also walking towards that direction, and, and Rittenhouse passed him up. Uh, and, and, and Rittenhouse uh, was getting, as he was getting close to, to the car lot, that's when he passed Rosenbaum, who had kind of hidden uh, between two cars. And then that's when Rosenbaum saw Rittenhouse, 
And earlier in the night, Rittenhouse testified that Rosenbaum threatened him on two occasions. So they, they're already kind of familiar with each other um, already, but in this case, but he was with other people in those cases. So that's why he wasn't much, Rosenbaum wasn't much of a threat because, you know, safety in numbers. Right. But in this case, uh, he was alone. And, and the people who ended up being shot, I mean, it is not relevant to, you can't go around shooting people. These were also not fine, upstanding citizens. You can look at some of the things that these people had done in the past. Uh, one of them was a child abuser. And there were some very bad people on the streets. Another reason why I think Rittenhouse as a teenager shouldn't have been there, but another example of the type of people who are wreaking absolute violent havoc in the streets, seemingly with impunity, with the state, uh, you know, unable to handle it or unwilling to handle it. So let's fast forward, Julio, because we have a few minutes left here. Uh, this trial is still underway. I mentioned some of the big high octane moments that have been played. Rittenhouse breaking down in tears. The one witness admitting basically that this was self-defense, at least in the shooting involving him. The judge coming very close to accusing the prosecutor of misconduct a few different times. And it seems at least like from a lot of the legal folks that I've been following who are tracking this case closely, that it has been just a disaster for the prosecution. And yet a lot of the coverage that we've seen in the mainstream press hasn't really conveyed to a broader audience how disastrous the case has been for the prosecutor. And we see some of the usual suspects and the the activists on the left already, already, it would seem to me, Julio, kind of making implicit threats that if they don't get their mob justice here, namely a big conviction of Rittenhouse, independent of the actual evidence against Rittenhouse, there will be more anger and unrest. It's like some people almost want to be rooting for more rioting and violence. I know that's a very cynical take from me, but that's kind of how I'm reading it. How are you reading it? No, no. I mean, you're 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 absolutely right. I mean, some of the. I mean, it's 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 disappointing, but not surprising that you know once again the the media is not uh, the, a large part of the media is not accurately portraying the trial, and uh, it, it, it's, it, it's sad because people are uh, getting their hopes up that, like, oh, yeah, you know, he, Rittenhouse is definitely going to go away. And, and look, I'll, I'll say, you know, it's all going to come down to – it's all going to come down to turnout on the jury. So um, it, it ultimately it's going to be what the jury decides. But if the jury does uh, acquit him on the serious murder charges, I mean, a lot of people are going to be shocked because, you know, they've been – uh, consuming lied to? Uh, this, yeah, basically. I mean, uh, that, yeah, they've been lied no to. People are calling him, you know, yeah. a vigilante murderer. I saw CBS News, I think today, tweeted referring to him as as having committed murders, which is the whole purpose of the trial, right? The president of the United States called him a white supremacist. I don't know where that came from. There was a high-ranking Democrat, the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, uh, encouraged the jury to convict Rittenhouse and throw away the key. This guy, a supposed prison reform advocate, is in this case, he wants this kid to go away. And I mean, LeBron James weighing in uh, on some of this stuff. There are people seemingly to me for tribal reasons with nothing to do with the evidence put forward or the actual facts of the case want Kyle Rittenhouse convicted of murder because they view him as fill in the blank bad. And it's it's just sort of scary to see how many people are so committed to their own tribe and their own uh, colored or blinkered sense of justice versus actual factual information. Hopefully that's not the case. It has not been the case with the judge, fortunately. Hopefully that will not be the case with the jury here. 
Last question about the jury, Julio. There's been some rumors about people filming or taking photos of the jury, some some concern that perhaps uh, there might be an attempt at doxing the jury, meaning if, if the jury doesn't give the verdict that certain people want, identities will be revealed. Is there any truth to that? Uh, so the the judge on Tuesday did start the court proceedings uh, saying that someone did film the jury when they were uh, boarding the bus to, at the pickup location. And so apparently the video was deleted. The sheriff's deputy made the person stop and uh, we're, we're told it's deleted. But as we know, with cell phones, it, you, you know, you really have to make sure that it's actually off the <laughs> off the phone. Um, so that's, that's that's something that actually did happen, uh, according to the judge. And, you know, we did we did have. Uh, you know, an activist up in Minneapolis on Sunday telling on a lot, bragging on a live stream that he knew people were taking photos of the jury. Um, so it's, you know, unfortunately, like this, this, this shouldn't be happening with because, you know, the jury needs to make an actual uh, verdict based on the evidence and not on external pressure. But clearly some some people out there uh, don't want it that way. And that's just, that's just yep. a sad state of where, where we're at right now. And pressure led to and pressure in the form of rioting and other things led to, I think a lot of people would argue, uh, unreasonable charges in the case, which if they are failed to be proven, which it looks like they are very much failing to prove some of those uh, those charges, if the jury then follows the evidence, then there will be anger based on the previous pressure. I mean, it, it the whole thing kind of feeds on itself and the people responsible at almost every turn for this totally dysfunctional situation, double and triple down. And it's pretty disgusting to watch. I know that we're getting very close to the end of the trial, Julio. Do you have a sense on the timeline here? We have about 30 seconds left. Uh, yes. So it appears that uh, Friday is going to be mostly a day off because they, the two sides want to be able to make their closing arguments on Monday. Um, and so it looks like the, the jury will enter deliberations on um, Monday evening or Monday afternoon. All right. Well, Julio Rosas at townhall.com. All of his coverage can be read at townhall.com. His video footage has proven pivotal in this case. And I think a lot of people are already bracing for what comes next. Hopefully it's justice, actual justice, not mob justice. And we'll see what the jury ends up doing with closing arguments, as you just heard, likely starting Monday. Julio Rosas of townhall.com on The Guy Benson Show. Julio, thank you. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. Here's one more note on how the discourse is going on the Rittenhouse trial. The judge in the trial, who is now uh, progressive enemy number one, apparently. They hate the guy. He's a Democratic appointee. But his phone rang in court yesterday and proud to be an American was his ringtone. So they were big mad about that because that's Trump's song. Imagine being that brain broken that that song to you is an indication of like a judge being unfit or something. He also had an American flag tie. God forbid. And then today there was a lunch break at the trial and the judge made a dad joke because he had ordered Asian food. And he said, I hope the Asian food isn't coming from one of those boats on Long Beach Harbor. It was a supply chain crisis joke about all the ships basically just stranded out there waiting to unload. It was a joke about hoping he can get his food, 
his Asian food more quickly than that because many of those ships are coming from Asia and people have lost their minds. Journalists, they said there's a gasp in the media section. I know, I know. Supply chain jokes are really tough, guys, but hang in there. I have faith. Together you can get through this. A dad joke about the supply chain. But of course, he's racist. He's racist. He's bought this this trial. He's unfit. This is not going to be justice if then the excuses are already happening. People are nuts. People are out of their minds. The Guy Benson Show continues. Actually, speaking of, we'll get to a story that you need to hear next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I want to read from The Atlantic. There's a piece that made the rounds this week. Finally got around to reading it, and I'm trying to figure out why they published it. The headline is, Getting Back to Normal is Only Possible Until You Test Positive. I was ultra careful for 18 months. Then I got COVID. It's written by someone called Alexis Madrigal. So here's what the story says. It begins with this setup, which is this guy as a best friend who was getting married in New Orleans. And this wedding had been put off a few times because of COVID, and they were finally going to go for it. The wedding date was at last set in stone. New Orleans is a great city that this person loves visiting. And after a lot of struggle sessions, this fully vaccinated, relatively young man in his late 30s said, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to attend this wedding. He writes, the downside, of course, was the risk of exposure to COVID. Sure, I'm vaccinated. Two shots of Pfizer. And the wedding's other attendees would also all be vaccinated, too. But breakthrough cases happen. He goes on, I reasoned both with myself and with my wife. COVID was unlikely to kill me, a vaccinated 39-year-old endurance athlete. I would be fine. Even if I gave the coronavirus to any of my family members, they too would almost certainly be fine. My wife is vaccinated and our young children's risk of serious illness, while not non-existent, is very low. Let me just say at this point, so far so good. It sounds like this person and his family were, in his words, ultra careful for a year and a half. I was not similarly ultra careful. I was careful. I was reasonable. Risk assessment, I think, was important. I followed advice from doctors. We had doctors on this show all the time, as many of you know. And we still have doctors on this show very frequently. I got my vaccine as soon as I could. I encouraged all of you to do the same. And I backed that up with medical advice from the Fox Medical team here on the air. So this guy was much more on the careful, cautious end of the spectrum, maybe a little over the top, maybe a little neurotic, you might say. But ultimately, what he just described there makes sense. He's 39 years old. He's an athlete. He's in very good health. He and his wife are vaccinated. The kids are very low risk because they're kids. That all makes sense. So he said, to hell with it. I'm going to New Orleans and I'm going to go to this wedding, overcoming a fear, perhaps an irrational fear, but he was able to reason with that fear and I think make what should be a pretty easy decision to go to your best friend's wedding. 
Back to the story. Quote, filled with a surge of love for my friends in New Orleans and a sense that, you know what, I'm ready to nose out into a new tier of risk. I booked a flight. I'd be going solo. So he describes getting to New Orleans via Las Vegas. He was wearing one of those surgical masks the whole time. He arrives at the wedding eventually. Quote, I walked in and saw the people were all inside, fairly densely packed into a big room. No one was wearing a mask. Everyone was celebrating like people who haven't seen each other for a long time, ready for a wedding weekend in the greatest city in America. For some reason, I was shocked. So he's astonished that this is an indoor wedding and people aren't wearing masks. He admits he doesn't know why he was expecting people to act this way, but he was still shocked. And eventually he just decided, you know what? I'm going for it. Quote, I ordered tequila and soda. Pushed breakthrough infections out of my mind, made some new friends and had a great time. He said the wedding was maskless. It was super fun. He spent some extra days in New Orleans, the city that he really likes. He said, I just wanted it all to go away, meaning COVID. And there in New Orleans for a few days, it seemed like it had. Just look at all those people singing at the piano bar, dancing to Lizzo, arm in arm with friend and stranger alike. Sounds fun. He says the next day he was going to head home. He did a rapid PCR test at the airport, came back negative. Monday arrives, feeling fine, took a test anyway, negative. Then he starts to have just a tiny bit of post-nasal drip and maybe a tickle in his throat, which, by the way, sounds exactly like my breakthrough case that I had of COVID back in August. That's exactly the way that I described it to all of you when I revealed I was in Texas. I got stuck in Texas, waylaid for a couple days. It was fine. My symptoms were very mild, just like this. But it was that Tuesday, four days after the wedding, he says his test came back negative, even though he felt like he had a cold. But his wife urged him to take yet one more test. This was after he said he did a very vigorous workout on Peloton. I feel like he and I have some stuff in common here, including these symptoms in the breakthrough case. And lo and behold, he tested positive. He thought maybe it was a false positive, so he tested again. It was positive again. He said he felt pretty sick, like when you have a cold, but I've probably been sicker, he writes, 15 times as an adult. He also had the experience of, oh, this is what losing your smell is like, your sense of smell. Again, this sounds awfully close to what I had, maybe a little bit more severe. I would not put my COVID breakthrough case anywhere close to the top 15 feelings of illness in my adult life. It was like a completely forgettable cold that you just power through under normal circumstances. I just happened to test because I was down in Texas for an event and I didn't want to get anyone who might be unvaccinated sick. So I did a precautionary test and tested positive. And then I quarantined until I tested negative. That's what we did at our end. It lasted four or five days. The symptoms were very mild the whole time. Now, here's where things start to get strange because I'm expecting, like this is a piece in the Atlantic. I'm expecting the shoe to drop, All right? Like, does he get really sick? Does he get his wife really sick? What happens? Why are they publishing sort of, frankly, a non-event story of a guy who's fully vaccinated, 
going to a wedding and getting a mild breakthrough case. Like, what exactly is the point of that? Is there some major lesson here? Well, his lesson is that these breakthrough cases are terrible, but not because he was very sick. He said his kids, they pulled him out of school. They had to isolate. His wife was isolating. There was disruptions to their education. There was disruption to his wife's work. He said his kids were really freaked out. Now, part of this also is because I think kids intuit things from parents, learn things from parents. This sounds like a family that put a very, very, very high premium on hyper-cautiousness. And so perhaps the, the risk evaluation that was made ultimately by this dad, it had not trickled down to the kids of an understanding of how low the risk actually was, but they apparently were extremely distressed that he had COVID. He writes, the very worst part was my children. They reacted in different ways. My non-binary eight-year-old was so mad and maybe so scared that they could barely look at me. I'm just going to leave that alone. The non-binary eight-year-old was that a second grader. Again, I think some of this sometimes is more about parents than about kids. But I guess that's what they've landed on. The eight-year-old is non-binary and goes by they. My five-year-old daughter proved her status as the ultimate ride-or-die kid. She brought a chair down the street so she could sit 20 feet away from me outside in her mask as I sat in an N95 mask. I just want to point out this is, there's, this is not grounded in science at all, right? The five-year-old would be fine even if she got COVID, right? Like over, over, overwhelmingly. Also, COVID doesn't spread outdoors almost at all ever. Sitting 20 feet apart in masks outside is just, it is neurotic. It's not scientific at all. But this is the way it's like, you know, it's like she was coming to visit him in prison or something. And they jumped through all these, frankly, unnecessary and anti-scientific hoops as this form of penance. And the one kid is so furious that they're not looking at dad. And the other one's like, well, I'll wear a mask 20 feet away from you outside. And then we get around to the punchline, which is nothing. The author writes, these vaccines are amazing. I was and am fine. He said there was some life disruption to his family, which he says was bad. I blame no one but myself. We cannot will this pandemic to be over. Lord knows I tried. I don't think you should blame yourself for anything. He didn't do anything wrong. This is just an exercise in self-flagellation. This guy's in the Bay Area, by the way, in case you were curious. This is a big multi-hundred word essay of self-flagellation because a fully vaccinated adult with almost no risk profile went to his best friend's wedding and got a mild cold and his family was mad about it and had, you know, a few days of disruption from work and school, some of which was probably overkill, quite frankly. He asks, when do we start treating COVID like other respiratory illnesses? That's a good question. Some of the stuff that he puts and posits in this article actually is is kind of reasonable and correct. It's not a festival of neurosis. But it feels like it's in conflict with itself constantly where he has the actual right idea 
and good data on the risk involved, and yet his actions and then the subsequent guilt just doesn't match up with it at all. It's incongruous. It's very strange to me. He says he doesn't know the answer to when we start treating COVID like other respiratory illnesses and getting back to normal. He said, right now, most policies appear designed to make life seem normal. Masks are coming off. Restaurants are dining in. Planes are full. Offices are calling. But don't be fooled. The world's only normal until you test positive. Except this all sounds kind of normal to me. He made the normal, correct decision to celebrate his best friend's big day. He had a great time with a bunch of people in New Orleans. He went above and beyond with the testing. He had a mild case of a breakthrough COVID infection. He had post-nasal drip and a tickle in his throat. Just kind of a cold. Lost his sense of taste for a while and smell. Isolated. There was some disruption to his family. As I mentioned, I think it was probably a little much, some of these changes that they made. And that's it. He's fine. See, in my mind, if this piece had simply been framed a different way with a different headline about this is how we get back to normal and how we have to and how the vaccines work and breakthrough cases for vaccinated people aren't bad for the overwhelming majority of cases and how a pandemic is becoming an endemic disease that we have to learn to live with and here's a little tale about why that's the case, that would be something that I would probably be reading in a more positive way or highlighting because I'm like, this is sensible and good. The strange thing, the strange element to me about this story was how it was framed in the other way. Like, oh, don't you think we can get back to normal yet? Because look at what happened to me. And the horror story that ensues where you keep waiting for the bad development, the horror story never materializes. And yet the author seems to, in his own mind, interpret what happened to him as a lesson that we are not back to normal and we can't really be back to normal. Hence all the anger and fear and guilt that is just deeply overblown. I know this was probably not Alexis Madrigal's intent when he wrote this for The Atlantic, but this is in reality – I think a very hopeful piece about a roadmap back to normal. That's how I choose to interpret this. He might not endorse that conclusion, but that's what I think the details of the piece actually convey. That's a good thing, whether he realizes it or not. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. Here's a Q&A from the uh, climate change conference in Scotland where, what, twenty or 30,000 people flew in on jets to talk about how serious the problem is, including a whole cadre from the Biden administration, not the least of whom is climate czar John Kerry. And he was asked a question about China. Of course, China didn't show up in a meaningful way, didn't make meaningful commitments. They are by far the biggest polluter and emitter in the world. The U.S. is actually leading the charge in the other direction without a bunch of new laws. We've cut our emissions in serious ways. The Chinese are going the opposite direction, 
And yet it's like, you know, we have to do all this unilateral action, even if the Chinese or the Indians aren't on board, which seems to me to be crazy and inflicting harm on ourselves without actually tackling the broader problem. That's a separate issue, though. But he was asked about China and their massive human rights abuses, including genocide against ethnic and religious minorities. And how does that play into his negotiations with the Chinese on the climate front? And he punted. This was sort of like an above my pay grade type answer. Cut 23. How in your in the several months of meetings uh, behind the scenes with China, did you bring up some of those very contentious issues um, such as use, the use of forced labor in Xinjiang for uh, for building solar panels. How did you address it, and how did you kind of overcome that in reaching this final? Well, we're honest. We're honest about the differences, and we certainly know uh, what they are, and we've articulated them. And but that's not my lane here. That's uh, my job is to be the climate guy. No, he's a climate guy. Right? It's not his lane to worry too much about the genocide and the stamping out of democracy and the lying about COVID that killed millions of people. It's not his lane. His lane is the climate. So you've got to do what you got to do with the Chinese Communist Party, which in his case means staying in his lane and not making too much of a ruckus about genocide. As a companion story, the Washington Free Beacon has this. Climate czar John Kerry is lobbying House lawmakers to oppose legislation that would ban the import of all Chinese-made goods that are being produced using Uyghur slave labor, a move on his part aimed at buying goodwill with Beijing as the United States seeks a new climate deal. This according to congressional sources and foreign policy insiders familiar with the matter. Kerry and a faction of State Department officials oppose legislation meant to curtail Chinese imports made using slave labor, the sources said, due to concerns that the restrictive measures will agitate Beijing. This is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and I guess John Kerry's against that because it would upset the communists in Beijing while he's trying to figure out something on climate change. Won't you think of the climate, everyone? I mean, sure, there are people being killed and reeducated and serially raped and all these things. But won't you think of the climate? John Kerry says it's not his lane to get into that stuff, but apparently it is because he's lobbying against a bill on the human rights violations. So it is his lane. He's just going the wrong way. What a look for John Kerry. More incoherence, of course, from the Biden administration. Didn't the president say human rights is the tent pole, the centerpiece of his foreign policy? Is it really? Is it? Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay with us. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Thursday. Welcome into the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing and growing in popularity, thanks in part to all of you. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com, all the places you can buy it near you. You can just plug in your zip code 
or you can order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, and always drink responsibly. And here on The Guy Benson Show, the podcast is always available for free. If you can't listen live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, our website is GuyBensonShow.com, which is family-friendly for all ages. GuyBensonShow.com, as I mentioned, the podcast is on demand, no charge to you. And on social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's the show account on Twitter and Instagram, Guy Benson Show, or Guy P. Benson. That's my personal account, Twitter and Instagram. And today is Veterans Day. So we are pleased to kick off our happy hour with our colleague and friend Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, host of Fox Nation Outdoors on Fox Nation, and host of the Fox podcast, Proud American. We'll be joining Joey at the Patriot Awards down in Florida next week. Looking forward to that. We'll have him on the show while we're down there in person, so that'll be fun. And I just want to tell you a bit about Joey's story if you don't already know. Enduring two combat deployments and eight years of active service in the Marine Corps, Staff Sergeant Jones suffered a life-changing injury while deployed in Afghanistan as an explosive ordnance disposal technician. That was in 2010. The IED-related incident resulted in the loss of both of his legs above the knee and severe damage to his right forearm and both wrists. Since his recovery, Jones has dedicated his work to improving the lives of veterans and their families. So what a perfect guest on this Veterans Day. Joey, welcome back to the show, and happy Veterans Day, and thank you for your service. Hey, brother. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate all the kind words, and uh, I'm one of about 20 million veterans in this country, and I'm just proud to be to be one of them. I want to talk a lot about that here in a moment. Just quickly, your anticipatory thoughts on the Patriot Awards. There will be, I'm sure, quite a few veterans in the room down in South Florida next week. It's my first Patriot Awards in person, and I understand it's yours as well. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, you know, it's it, the Patriot Awards kind of is a symbolic thing for my career. The first time I ever read a prompter, which, as you know, in our career, it's, it's kind of a big deal, was for the Patriot Awards last year to do something remotely. And so I'm just really excited to take it a full year later from everything we were dealing with last year and uh, and to be going to do it in person and to meet fans. It's crazy to say. It's hard for me to accept there's such a thing as a Joey Jones fan out there. But on the off chance there is, to meet them and shake their hands, uh, give them a hug if they want a hug, and uh, take a picture and, and then present these awards to people that have just really for absolutely no pats on the back at all, most of them never even expecting it, have changed people's lives and been patriotic Americans and, and made the world around them, whether it be their community or their country, better. And uh, so I can't think of a better reason to get together and, and meet some of these folks. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's always an inspiring event, and I'm glad that this is a new tradition at Fox News. So, Joey, on this Veterans Day, first I'd like for you to reflect on what it means in your mind to serve in the U.S. military and how you feel every Veterans Day. I mean you see a lot of people posting stuff on social media, thanking veterans, uh, maybe thanking you in person if they see you. Is that meaningful is it something that seems trite, or is it a genuine appreciation that you yourself appreciate? 
Yeah, you know, the, the, the sentiment behind Veterans Day is it, really kind of a homecoming, if you really think about uh, the origins of the, of the holiday. And it's an opportunity to um, really thank those who, who have recently come home and, and put their life on the line and by the skin of their teeth and the grace of God made it home and hopefully in one piece. And back in May, we had this holiday, this the ultimate solemn holiday about memorializing those that did not make it home in one piece or, or make it home mm-hmm. alive. And so, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, as the, as the world, as the North American continent wakes up to spring, we celebrate those that we should memorialize. And as it goes into its fall slumber, we celebrate those that have served. And I, I've always thought that was a really neat part of it. I just drove off a mountain that I grew up on and seeing all the colors of the leaves on Veterans Day, I stopped into um, some places that sell apples because that town's known for it. And happy Veterans Day here. Happy Veterans Day there. And it felt incredibly genuine, and it felt like a community saying thank you to one of their own. And that's what I hope Veterans Day is around this country. I think we have a little bit of a um, – we're a little bit jaded on the idea of coming home from war, taking over your dad's hardware store, and having a chance at marrying the homecoming queen or homecoming king. Like, that's that used to be the life, right? That used to be what we all aspired for. And now we live in this world where we open up social media and, and it's like we compare ourselves to people coast to coast. And that's not the community that raises us. And it's not the world most of us exist in. And I hope that Veterans Day, with all the little parades and the VFWs and American Legions and outposts around the country and these micro celebrations that specifically happen on Veterans Day, what it does for me is it just reminds me of how amazing this country is and how small it can be if we let it and how that can be enough. How often are you in touch with your brothers and sisters in arms? And when you are chatting and maybe thinking back to tougher times in harm's way, what are those conversations like, especially on a day like today? Yeah, you know, I come from a community is what we call it, uh, much like special operations would call theirs a community. We, we call the EOD, the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Marine Corps community, um, and I'm on a group text with 14 others, and we're talking every single day. Now, I'll be completely honest with you. We're a bunch of combat veterans. 90% of what we say I could never repeat in public because taken out of context, it doesn't Yes, definitely good. not on the radio. In fact, let's <laughs> let's make sure we've got the seven-second delay ready here for Joey Jones. <laughs> Go ahead. But on a day like today, you'll get the day will start off with a bunch of memes about a veteran at Applebee's kind of making fun of ourselves, getting a free meal. And then about by lunchtime, you'll have a lot of texts come through saying, hey, guys, I I just want you all to know I appreciate you. It means a lot that I got to serve with you. And that's the balance that you have to have in combat. That's the balance you have to have even in the job we do now. You got to be able to make fun of yourself and highlight the things that you can giggle at and then back that up with, with something that means something. And for men, and, and I would imagine I, they're all guys on that text, but I have plenty of female veterans, and I would imagine it's the same for men and women, but there's this kind of necessity to kind of posture and, and kind of shake off praise. Or, or And it's not really humility as much as to make sure people know you, you don't need their praise to be who you are, but then at the end of the day, you do need it. You need a pat on the back. You need someone to say thank you. You need to know that the things that really sucked but were for a purpose are appreciated. And I think what I love most about Veterans Day, and I know all my guys and gals I served with acknowledge this too, is really it's, it's not just a single day, it's a season. And that's a really neat thing to see the celebrations going on. They kind of loop it back. Um, I had a buddy that's a Silver Star recipient, which 
for those that don't know, makes him a bona fide hero. It means that the things he did should have killed him, and they didn't. And in the process, he saved somebody else. And he got asked to go speak at one of his one of the guys he served with and deployed with at the VFW in that guy's hometown. And uh, in our group text, we all got to go on that journey with him. You know, he's taking pictures of his uniform he's going to wear, and then he's taking pictures on the road, and then he's taking pictures at the event, and. He's sending them back to us, and he's not asking for praise, but we're giving it to him. And that's the kind of interaction that I just live for and love, and, and that's what we need. No, I think that's really special, and I think that's the community that you exist in. The vast, vast, vast majority of us in this country did not serve, have no concept of what you guys went through, really, right, beyond your stories, news reports, depictions in media or film or television And I think what we can do is show gratitude because it's a volunteer force and you guys go through a lot so we can have the life that we have. And I like Veterans Day because it's one of those reminders, a forced reminder, but a needed one for us to just take a step back and think about those sacrifices and think about the decisions that others made so that we can have our lives safely back here at home and it means the world it should to every single american joey on veterans day there's also a less glamorous side of course to veterans who come home and it's not all flag waving and parades and you know pats on the back there are people who really suffer after they've come home from war they've got ptsd there's homelessness there can be drug abuse there's you know, a suicide issue. What are some of the real challenges facing the community of veterans in this country? And what can other people do about it to try to help? Because if anyone has earned our help, it's veterans. You know, it's a great question. And your your daily show isn't long enough to answer it fully. But I'll give you an aspect of this that a lot of people don't talk about. And I try to, not because it's the all-encompassing, but because it's something that a lot of people don't talk about. When you're in the military, you're in a regimented, confined situation. And that regimented routine is really a saving grace. You can't step too far outside the line to the left or the right because there's someone there to keep you in the line. And being in the line may mean uh, waking up and going to work in the morning. Being in the line may mean... Uh, not, you know, getting too far away from base. So you can't go off on a three-day weekend to Las Vegas and spend all your money getting in. And so my point there is there are, there are expectations and parameters in your life. And a lot of veterans actually suffer from pre-service trauma. Their family let them down. Something happened to them. They lost a loved one. They had their heart broken even. And they found their way into the military. And, and at 18, 19 years old, those barriers, those walls go up, and they don't let that negative thing, that demon inside, to take control. And then they go on this journey in the military where they grow and mature in some ways, but other things like, you know, how to buy a house or, you know, things that most Americans learn how to do, how to interview for a job, never really become a part of their training. They're, they're growing and maturing in these other ways that aren't always feeling applicable in the civilian world. And then right, they, totally different contexts. Yeah, and, you know, and to, to shorten this up a little bit, they get stationed across the country from where they're from. They meet someone. They have children. Then they 
get out of the military, they're not with that person anymore. They moved back home, and now they're a country away from their children. And there's all these aspects that really have nothing to do with actual combat. I've always said that combat made the most sense. I trained for it. I saw what happened to other folks that went to it. And when I got there, I got exactly what I signed up for. And it's these other aspects of life that are very difficult for most Americans, but are compounded by the military experience that kind of plucks you out of society, hangs on to you for a while, and then throws you back in. I call it failure to relaunch. You have 35-year-old veterans going through the same indecision and uncertainty that an 18-year-old graduating high school is. Do I go to college? Do I go to work? What kind of, you know, do I have time for a career? And, like, that is the type of anxiety and stress that ultimately can lead to homelessness because you just feel like you don't know which way to turn, and then you turn to self-medication, which is usually drugs and alcohol. And that's not the norm for veterans, but it's happening at too high of a rate for the talent, intellect, and ability of folks we're bringing out of the military. The number one thing we can do is, as a populist demand that our Department of Defense do a better job at training our sons and daughters to come back home. That's the number one thing. And then the next thing, now we're starting, that's talking about root cause, to treat a symptom, believe in these veterans, have expectations of them, offer them opportunities, not handouts. That's what they respond to. Uh, And that isn't always a job, but an opportunity to help themselves is really what they're that's what they're looking for, even if they don't know it. And sometimes that comes in the form of a helping hand, a good conversation, a breakfast every Wednesday mentorship, and helping make good decisions that are the types of decisions they've never had to make before, really. Mm. Oh, important stuff and well said. Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, Fox Nation host, and the Patriot Awards down in South Florida happening one week from yesterday, next Wednesday, the 17th. It will air live on Fox Nation, 8 p.m. Eastern, foxnation.com. Joey, thank you for those thoughts. Thank you for sharing some of your experience. Thank you again for your service and for the service of all of the men and women with whom you served. And I can't wait to see you down in Florida next week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Joey Jones on The Guy Benson Show on this Veterans Day. It's the happy hour. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. So there was a story last week. CNN interviewed a couple in Texas, Krista and Larry Stotler. And they have a very large family, including adopted kids and foster kids. And they were really struggling with inflation, particularly when it comes to feeding this large family. And they were talking about the price of milk going up, and they mentioned how they typically buy 12 gallons of milk a week. And a bunch of the a-holes in the D.C., New York media decided that this was hilarious. Who, who drinks that much milk? Who's drinking all that milk? So it became a whole sort of Twitter game making fun of these people, even though they have a family of 11, including nine children, seven of whom are adopted or foster kids. And some of them are teenagers, big boys. They say they don't allow them to drink sodas. It's lots of cereal, a lot of cooking with milk, and then drinking large glasses of milk. With 11 people, you can go through a lot of milk, I would imagine. So it was a bad look, as usual, for the elitist sneering press. These people talking about how 
the increased price of milk and other goods really impacting their family and rather saying, oh, my gosh, bless these people for the work that they're doing. Bless these people for their adoptions and their caring for foster kids. This must be really hard on them. Yes, this inflation issue is real and it's hurting people. You had people trading jokes about maybe they're lying about how much milk they drink. And are they confused about the price of milk? Are they exaggerating? Anyway, it was not a great look. But there's a happy development here in the happy hour via the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Dallas-based Oak Farms Dairy found the family after this interview and is now providing them with a year's worth of free milk, which, as we've established, is a lot of milk. So that's a very nice move from Oak Farms Dairy in Dallas. By the way, our affiliate here on this show in Dallas, KFXR 1190 AM, now expanding three hours nightly, the Guy Benson Show, 7 to 10 p.m. Central. So hello, Dallas. If you see this family, give them a wave and a thumbs up and an attaboy from all of us here at the Guy Benson Show. Cool story. Uh, They were struggling, and I'm glad that this company stepped up. But there are many other families dealing with exactly the same problem. And Washington and journalists and well-heeled people shouldn't mock it. They should internalize it. Try to do something about it. What is wrong with some people, honestly? All right, the Guy Benson Show continues after this. Stay tuned. Got milk? Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. In our first hour today, Byron York stopped by, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. A lot to catch up with on Byron on a host of topics, news of the day. Here's part of his analysis. Listen, I want to ask you about a controversy that I've seen play out a bit. I have not followed it terribly closely. I did see that Governor Ron DeSantis down in Florida had sort of a pointed comment about it. It's these uh, these flights, these late night flights carrying illegal immigrants from the border in Texas to other states. I know New York had gotten some of these immigrants uh, flown in in the dead of night. And I, I think when the press secretary was asked about it a few weeks ago, she was disputing, was it really the dead of night or was it very early in the morning? Like that's sort of how she was deflecting. Uh, some have gone to Florida as well. And DeSantis in Jacksonville had some statement about it. Here's what he said in Cut 21. So here's what happens with these flights. There's no notification to the state of Florida. These are done mostly in the middle of the night, and it's clandestine, and we really have no say into it. Uh, We're going to get together and figure out what we can do in the immediate term uh, to protect folks in Florida. You know, my view would be, why don't we, if, if they're going to come here, you know, we'll provide buses and provide them. Uh, we, I will send them to Delaware. All right. So you're going to send them up to the president's home state. What is going on uh, with these flights? And what's the jurisdiction here? Just the feds putting illegal immigrants onto airplanes and flying them into other states with no advanced knowledge or even a heads up for the governments of those states? Well, that is indeed happening. Actually, one of the good things 
about this Florida uh, example here is that we have really official confirmation of it. Um, in other states, we've had press reports, uh, we've had talk about it, uh, but with, with Florida, with the governor coming out confirming it all, I think it's very useful. Uh, the answer is, yeah, I mean, th- this is what the Biden administration is doing uh, to, uh, it, it, you and I have discussed, as a matter of fact, the the Biden administration policy is the most, I think, um, destructive thing about it is that Biden sent a message to people who were considering crossing illegal in, illegally into the United States is that if you do it, you can stay. Mm-hmm. It's been an enormous incentive uh, for people uh, to come here. Uh, and also, there are real limits as to what state governors can do. I was thinking about this just today. Uh, back in 2010, if you remember, uh, a woman named Jan Brewer was governor of Arizona. Yep. Uh, the state passed a law uh, allowing them to uh, check on the legal status of people who were otherwise uh, stopped for uh, suspicion of illegal activity. This became a huge national uh, brouhaha. And the bottom line was, is um, Brewer, the governor, was saying, look, if the federal government is not going to enforce the immigration laws, then we'll do it. Well, the, the Obama administration took her to court, and the Obama administration's argument was pretty simple. It was the federal government has the sole authority to uh, enforce the immigration laws. My full interview with Byron York of the Washington Examiner and, of course, a Fox News colleague, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, a quote-unquote scandal for a politician in the upper Midwest. What did she do? Why is she kind of apologizing? And why do I think she probably shouldn't apologize? That's all straight ahead on the home stretch, of course, with producer Christine, next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. On the Guy Benson Show, Friday Eve, here on the program, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always available for free after the show ends. That's on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. So on the home stretch, here's a story that I saw trending yesterday on Twitter. And it was just a perfect home stretch for us because it involves college football, heavy drinking, and politics. So something for everyone. College football for me, heavy drinking for Cookie, politics for all of you. So the attorney general in Michigan, Dana Nessel, she's a Democrat. She is embroiled in, I don't even really want to call it a scandal because I'm going to back up the attorney general, even though I'm sure I disagree with her on most things. To me, this is not really a story. I saw a headline that she had rejected her aide's advice to hire a crisis management team to help her get through this. I'm like, no, there's no crisis. Nothing needs to be managed. Here's what happened. She has put out a statement confirming that she had too much to drink on an empty stomach during a tailgate 
before a college football game late last month and ended up needing some assistance to leave the stadium because she was not feeling well. Foxnews.com has the story. Other places have it, too. She attended the Michigan-Michigan State game at Spartan Stadium in East Lansing. Ended up being a big win for the home team, beating their rival come from behind. That was October 30th, right before Halloween. And she said that she had a few Bloody Marys on an empty stomach and was hurting in the stands. Quote, I laid low for a while, but my friends recommended that I leave as to prevent me from vomiting on any of my constituents. (laughs) She posted a photo of herself holding her head while she was seated in the stands. She left early, assisted as she walked out. Someone used a wheelchair to make sure she could get back to her car. She was driven home by a designated driver. So she even included these photos herself. She said, yeah, her staff had recommended that she could benefit from hiring a crisis management company to navigate what she called tailgate gate, which is pretty good, but instead decided to just tell the truth to constituents. And I think that's the right move. Look, this was a rookie mistake. I'm not sure how often she goes to tailgates. But when the day drinking begins before a college football game, and in my book, it's one of the only circumstances in which day drinking is acceptable. Certainly, like early, like morning drinking. And these days for morning games, because a lot of the kickoffs in the Midwest are at 11 a.m., Back in the day, I would maybe do some tailgating or some drinking. I'm less inclined. Right? I don't really roll in to a tailgate at 10 a.m. and say, oh, yeah, someone please hand me a shot. Right? That's just I'm getting too old for that. But this was a huge game, in-state rivalry, both teams ranked in the top 10, and she made the mistake of having not just drinks but cocktails with nothing to eat. I mean, you got to do better than that, right? You What you want is food right away, right? And it's okay to drink a little bit. It's okay to eat non-breakfast foods at a tailgate during day drinking or tailgating. That's fine. So show up, have a brat, have a beer, even a long drink, a well-placed long drink, now available in Michigan, by the way. Maybe we shouldn't tell her that just yet. Just let her kind of maybe detox for a couple weeks. But long drink is available in Michigan. Maybe have every few drinks some water and make sure that you keep consuming some food. Drinking liquor on an empty stomach during the day at a pace that is too rapid is going to end badly. And that's what happened for this politician. And I think it's kind of funny that she's saying, yeah, my friends are like, you need to get out of here before you puke on your voters. Probably good advice from the friends. So there have been critics saying, oh, this is bad judgment. She couldn't control herself. Is there a problem? Look, if there's some sort of pattern of behavior of getting drunk in public or she might have some sort of a problem, that's one thing. I don't see any evidence of that. This just seems like someone having too much to drink before a football game, realizing it. And having to shuffle away and then go home and sleep it off. 
if anything, this is one of the more relatable things I've ever read about a politician. And the way that she framed it, I think is exactly right. So like kudos for candor. And based on what I recall about Michigan and Michigan State fans, I kind of feel like this might be a plus politically for her. Definitely in Wisconsin. I mean, if if she got drunk before a Badgers game in Wisconsin, it'd be like re-election guaranteed. They like their cheese and they like their booze in Wisconsin. Michigan, not too dissimilar. So just uh, the advice again to Dana Nessel, the Democratic attorney general up in Michigan, pace yourself, water or non-alcoholic beverages every few drinks, maybe every other drink, what I typically do. And food. This is some uh, some silly, avoidable errors, some self-inflicted wounds here. And she then missed arguably the best college football game of the season thus far. Maybe Texas-Oklahoma. But that Michigan-Michigan State game was great. And I think if I'm seeing this correctly she's a michigan state fan so she missed a huge comeback for her own team their chant at michigan state is go green go white i don't think that they were trying to make it so literal like turning green for this woman and not to belabor this too much but the instinct of all these worry wart hand-wringing advisors being like oh let's bring in outside assistance to manage this crisis i mean sometimes you've got a crisis Right. Sometimes you've got a legitimate crisis to deal with if you're a politician. Getting drunk in your free time before a football game, consuming a legal substance as someone who is of age, not a crisis. At least not to me. Now, producer Christine, you strike me as someone who would never make it even into the stadium. What? Not necessarily because you were too drunk, just because you're not really that interested in sports. Maybe a little combination of the two. Are you scoffing at Dana Nessel here, or are you feeling, yet again, a strange sense of solidarity with a Democrat under fire? Yes, yes. But I I have a few things I need to talk to you about with this story. Um, Number one, I have never, ever been to a tailgate. Is that surprising to you? A little bit because it's a socially acceptable forum for day drinking. So I feel like you would gravitate toward them even if there was no game. You might just start tailgates in your own yard. So there's another thing I want to tell you. This is all about the onion. I am not a huge fan of day drinking. I, I like it to be dark outside when I'm consuming alcohol. Remember I told you. Um, If I was going to day drink, my dream would be to sit in a dark, dark bar on a bright, sunny day. Right. Here's what I think you should do. You should go to a football game, NFL or college. Try to convince yourself that you have some level of excitement for the game upcoming. Go to a tailgate. It has to be a good one, right, where they've got ideally a grill, of course, some accoutrement, some – uh, side dishes, Wait, some in, in the dips parking and chips. Lot? Oh yeah, in the and this is classy lot, to you. And then people, this is this is football culture. And then a lot of people have TVs, like flat screen TVs and satellite dishes that they set up so you can watch the other games 
while you're waiting for your game, and then you have some drinks and you have some, perhaps a Coke Zero, for example, from time to time, some water. You hang out with your friends. You, uh, Some people will maybe play games like cornhole or bags, right? Or they'll throw a football around. It is a fantastic tradition. You get to eat good food as opposed to paying through the nose for bad stadium food. You monitor the other games. I mean, it's a great American tradition, actually. And I'm surprised that you have not found a way to get yourself invited to one of them at some point through the years. I know you're not a big sports gal, but I feel like this is the side of sports that you would actually really like. It's very social. There's food and beverage. You can contribute. There's a plan. You could produce a tailgate, Christine. I feel like this is something that could maybe get you into sports, actually. All right. So then should I just go with you for the next one? Uh, We can look into that. I can I can check my schedule. I think actually that date that you just mentioned, I think I've got a uh, dentist appointment. <laughs> I didn't give a date. That day. Oh. Um, we can, we can figure out the date. Um, okay, but let, back, to, back to poor Dana. Um, I, of course, am going to stick up for her because that's what I do with Democrats. I stick up for them in their time of need. Yeah, but I think what— Yeah, lately you have. I think what the— But ex- except this one, I actually believe this one. Yeah, I think what the attorney general needs more than— you know, a crisis manager for how she reacted to the alcohol is some sort of alcohol manager like myself. I will offer up my services because Dana, two Bloody Marys should not get you, you know, as the kids say, wrecked. Uh, well, my my guess is it may not have been just two Bloody Marys. That's the one part of this story that I'm not fully, fully believing. Right? I think it might have been Two, in quotes, Bloody Marys. Yeah, because, I mean, two Bloody Marys to me would, you know, be the shower drink as I was getting ready. that's breakfast. Right. That's just not – I don't think that's what's going to send her into the state that she was in. So, And if it did, then I would work with her on the weekends of building some tolerance. This reminded me of Lucille Bluth, by the way, from Arrested Development where she walks into the kitchen. She's like, I'll have a vodka tonic. And one of her kids goes, Mom, it's breakfast. And she goes, and a piece of toast. There you go. Here's the final quote from the AG in Michigan about this story. Quote, sometimes I screw up. This was definitely one of those times. My apologies to the entire state of Michigan for this mishap, but especially that Michigan fan sitting behind me. Some things you can't unsee. This is a good statement. This is the correct response, and maybe the attorney general can be more judicious, if you will, in her alcoholic intake in the future. And perhaps, yes, rather than hiring a crisis management, she can hire a drinking coach, Christine. Although, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the coach you want. What do you mean? I, I, I stand with you, Dana, and I'm here to help uh, in any way I can. This could be a new small business. This could be one of your new get-rich-quick schemes. You start a new business called Sloshing Mama, Inc. Sloshing Mama, LLC with Cookie Christine, your personal drinking coach. Although, again, you don't like day drinking, so I'm not sure you're the expert here. I know, but I mean, listen, I will. I can go into day drinking if I want to expand my business. I think my motto would be maybe like <laughs> bottoms up. Uh-huh. All right, why don't you workshop that? And you can talk it over with Bobby tonight. 
Maybe we'll revisit it tomorrow on the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. We'll talk to you then. Have a great night. Bottoms up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.